The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. I'm going to read to y'all Judges 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said, go with me I will go but if you will not go with me I will not go and she said I will surely go with you nevertheless the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh and Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh and 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the, kent, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. 
<laughs> yeah, I think so. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And for the countless saints who have gone before us, from whose lives we can see how your light shines in the darkness. Pray that that's what we see this morning, so that we will believe your light still shines in our darkness, and we will be a people who march on with might. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for his glory by your Spirit. Amen. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Judges chapter Four, as we dive back into our series through this book, entitled, When All Other Lights Go Out. We entitled that series, or I entitled that this, because Judges is a dark book. Think you got that a little bit from the reading this morning? We've already seen that Judges is a dark book through all that we've traveled through, and the deeper we march into this book, the darker things will seem to get. Like to the point that we'll probably find ourselves asking, how can we keep going? Some of you have literally said this to me as you've been reading through the Bible and you get to Judges, you're like, Jonathan, this isn't hard to read. It's just so dark. I don't know if I can just keep going. As, as more and more lights go out, how can I keep going? How can we keep marching on? That's the question that we find ourselves asking, not just in Judges, but in life. Like, is it not? Like in your life, when things seem to get dark and only grow deeper and deeper into the, the darkness, when, when, it, when it seems like God is losing in your life or that he's not even present, like when all around your soul is just giving way, when all other lights go out, how is your faith supposed to keep going? How are you supposed to keep marching on? That's the question that confronts us in Judges chapter 4 and 5. It confronts us because that is the thing these chapters call us to do, to march on. Literally, Judges chapter 5 and verse 21, we hear the call, march on, my soul. But if I'm honest, my life can make that call feel more like a question. Like, march on, my soul, like... Like how, how when I'm surrounded by so great a darkness that I can't even see the path before my feet? Like when the darkness deepens to that point and all of am I supposed to march on my soul? That's our question. And Judges answers it this morning with a story and a song. This is, I only had us read chapter four. I didn't want to put you through eight and a half straight minutes of reading. But what we're doing four and five this is the only place, because they tell the same story, 
is with a story and then a song. And this is the only place in the entire book of Judges where we get the same story twice in a row. In fact, everything in this chapter seems to come at us in twos. We're going to get two judges, two enemies, two women, two tribes, two victories. And we get the whole thing two times. All of it makes it feel like this is ramping up to some sort of climax. Why, why this climactic doubling? I think it's because we are hitting the halfway point of the major judge cycles. You remember? We covered all this a while ago in the introduction. This, this book, it comes at us in cycles. With each judge we encounter, we get the same six-step cycle repeated. As six steps are rebellion, wrath, regret, rescue, rest, repeat. Any of this ringing a bell for those of you who were here last fall? All right, I'm going to keep going anyway. All right, so yeah, so we get this same cycle over and over again. Do you recall how many of these major judge cycles we will get in this book? You remember? Six. It's easy. It's the same number of steps there are in the cycle. We will get six of these. And right here in Judges chapter four and five, we are encountering cycle number three. Cycle one had the judge Othniel. Cycle two had the judge Ehud. And now we get cycle number three. We're hitting the halfway point of our major judges. And we haven't seen anything yet when it comes to darkness. You dark so far, you just wait Judges 4, 5, and 6, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. They're going to make these first three look like a day at the beach. And that's why, that's why I think we get this climactic doubling, ramping up, calling us right here. You're halfway through the journey. We're halfway home. Things are getting dark, and we get this climactic call. March on. Gotta, gotta keep going. We get this call to march on through this story, and we're shown how to march on as we sing it through this song. See that with me. Begin reading. Judges chapter four and verse one. And the people of Israel, again, again, we did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel, of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Rebellion, wrath, regret, they're all here in these first three verses. God's people rebel. It's through idolatry again. We know it's that. It's that every time, but the song tells me that it's that. In chapter 5 and verse 8, we read, When new gods were chosen... Then war was in the gates. We're not going to be able to go through chapter 5 systematically like we're going to go through chapter 4. The song illuminates what's going on in chapter 4. So we're going to constantly be bringing it forward to help us see more of what's happening right here. And right here it helps us see Israel forsakes Yahweh to place their faith in false gods, the false gods of the Canaanites. The primary one we've talked about is Baal, the Canaanites' fertility god. Baal rules over the storms. That's, that's how the rain falls and makes the land fertile in Israel and agricultural society. That's what they need. So they rebel and serve this false fertility God. And in response to their rebellion, we see wrath. 
the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin and his commander, Sisera. We get this first glimpse of this kind of dual double enemy right here, a king and a commander, Jabin and Sisera, who's the primary one we'll hear about. And for 20 years, they oppressed the people cruelly. The Bible is very economic with its adjectives, and so when they appear, you've got to take them seriously. Cruelly. You want to read what is bound up in that one little word? Go read the song. Read chapter 5, verses 28 to 30, where we hear about the practices of Sisera and his 900 chariots after they had victory in battle and would divide up the spoils of war and rape the women of the people they conquered. He oppressed them cruelly for 20 years. And one of the reasons we're told that to do this is because they had superior technology. Sisera commanded 900 chariots. That's, that's the ancient equivalent of being the only army in town with tanks. Like on level ground, you're, you're undefeatable, in, indestructible. So on the plains, nobody can match Sisera. And it's under this oppression that the people cry out in regret, not in repentance. Remember, we've said that several times. The cries that we see the people make in Judges, they're not cries of repentance. They're, they're cries of pain, not penitence. And what, what's so amazing when you realize that is God still, he's still merciful to his people. He's merciful to consistently, when they cry out in pain, he has pity on them and he, he raises up a rescuer, a deliverer, a judge, a savior. We've seen him do that already for his people twice before, but right here he does it again and this time it looks a little different. Normally at this point in our cycle, we just simply hear the refrain and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. But we don't get that phrase here. Instead, we get an extended story of how he raised up a deliverer. And I think, I think that's because it's through this story that we will hear the call to march on amidst the darkness. Look at it with me, verse four. Now Deborah, or Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Immediately we think, aha, the Lord must be raising up Deborah to be the judge, the, the deliverer. And that might be what we think at first, but this story is going to have a number of surprising twists and turns. And Deborah's primary role in this story is not that of Judge. That's one of her roles, but her primary role that we're going to see is prophetess. That's how she's introduced to us. There are, there are other prophetesses throughout Scripture, but if you were, if you were reading the storyline of Scripture up to this point, there's only one other prophetess that's been named before Deborah. Does anyone know who it is? Bible trivia. Miriam. Two points to the back. I don't have my glasses on. Miriam, Moses' sister. We'll play sides of the room. Y'all are ahead. Two points. Come on. What's going on? All right, anyway. Miriam, thank you. Thank you, Kenyon. 
Yes, Miriam, Moses' sister. So get this, get this though. Here's the point. The fact that Deborah is a prophetess would make our minds click back. Oh, she's a prophetess, like we've seen before, like Miriam. You'd immediately begin a comparison. Hang on to that for just a second. Now, as a prophetess, Deborah's primary task would be to hear from the Lord and speak his message to the people. What a prophet does. And that's what we see her doing as she's judging Israel. Now, if you recall from all the work we did last fall, there are two sides to this Hebrew word judge. There's an internal side and an external side, or we might say domestic affairs and foreign affairs. It's, it's a word of governance, right? And the majority of the judges that we see in the external foreign affairs, they're military leaders raised up to, to fight foreign enemies. But Deborah, as a prophetess, is judging Israel. She is bringing God's care on internal affairs, on what's going on amongst the people. And that's the very thing we see her being asked to do right here. People have been crying out in the midst of their oppression that's coming at them from Jabin and Sisera, and they don't know what to do. And so they come up to Deborah. Verse 5 says, the people of Israel, that's collectively, they come up. They're saying, is there judgment from God? Is there a word from God as to what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act in this situation? And that's precisely the word that Deborah gives. Look at verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I, that's God, I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops. And I will give him into your hand. God gives Deborah a word. It's a word for Barak. Barak, whose name means lightning. We've got some big expectations of this dude. If Sisera, if Sisera serves Baal, the god of the storm, and he rides out with his 900 chariots that sound like thunder, then Yahweh says, I'm going to bring a little lightning to this fight. Go get Barak. Deborah does, and she and God's promise. God's commanded you, go gather your troops. And here's God's promise. He's going to give you victory. How will Barak, the man of lightning, respond? Verse eight, Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, will not go. Well, that feels a little bit of a letdown right there, doesn't it? I don't know what it seems like on the surface to you, but it seems like to me like Barack's afraid. Like he needs Debbie to hold his hand. Like he seems full of fear, not faith. And why, I mean, why, why wouldn't he be fearful? He may have 10,000 men underneath his command, but Sisera's got 900 chariots. He's basically undefeatable. I mean, 
This hearing the 900 chariots immediately sends our mind back to the first and only place chariots have been mentioned so far in Judges. Judges chapter 1 and verse 19, we heard this mention of iron chariots, and it's the first place Israel's faith failed. Is that, is that not what we see going on with Barak here, an, an echo of that? Some scholars say no. They argue that Barak's response is not rooted in fear, but is actually a response full of faith. Uh, they'll point to the fact that Barak appears in Hebrews 11. Remember Hebrews 11? Sometimes it gets called the hall of faith. Feels like this just big list of like, yay, heroes of the faith. Barak gets an honorable mention there. And so some scholars say that Barak's request for Deborah's presence it's really because he wants one who speaks God's word at his side. It's an expression of faith in God's word. Which is it? Faith or fear? Shades, if all we had to go on were the words in these chapters, then I, I could see completely how you could interpret Barak's response either way. As one of faith or as one of fear. I, and you get me today, personally think it's a response of fear. And what convinces me of that are not the words in these chapters, structure of this book. I mean, I already mentioned this feels like an echo of chapter 1 and verse 19, which would lead us to believe that this is a response of fear. But even bigger than that, from beginning to end, the structure of the book of Judges is a descent. It's, it's a downward spiral deeper and deeper into darkness. And that descent includes the judges. Othniel, our first judge, he was great. One of the best we're going to get. Ehud, remember the whole knife, dagger, belly situation? Remember that? He was questionable. Barak questions. That's going to get picked up in the next judge, Gideon and amplified, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. That's one of the things that leads me to think this is a response of fear. But even more than that, I'll give you a bigger structural thing. I know everybody's like so psyched about some literary structure. The structure of Judges 4 and 5, story than song, they are structured in such a way as to echo the only other Old Testament scene with a story and song. Can anyone think of another story of deliverance followed by a song that celebrates it? Two points, we're tied. Yes, Exodus 14 and 15. Easy to remember, Judges 4 and 5. Just add a one, Exodus 14 and 15. In Exodus 14 and 15, we get the story of God's people crossing the Red Sea, being delivered from an army of chariots. And on the other side of the waters, the people sing. In fact, Miriam, the prophetess, leads the women of Israel in singing and dancing and celebration. So interesting. Here we have another story of deliverance, another song, another Miriam. Do we also have another Moses? Who, when called to deliver God's people from oppression responds with hesitancy and fear. You remember that? From the call of Moses? 
He needed reassurances from the Lord. It's not the same thing we're seeing right here. And God, just like he gave reassurances to Moses, he gives reassurances to He does it through Deborah. Again, though, with a surprising twist. Look at verse nine. And she said, I will surely go with you. Same thing God says to Moses. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Deborah doesn't hesitate. Like her strong faith stands in stark contrast to Barak's fear. But, but, she doesn't use her faith to mock him, but to encourage him. Scholars will argue that God and Deborah are kind of mocking and shaming Barak right here by saying, aha, you don't get the glory. We're going to go into the hand of a woman. Sister is going to die by her hand. And they'll say that because there is a place later in Judges where we will see great shame heaped on a soldier, a warrior, because they die at the hand of a woman. But what we will see is that is an incredibly different situation with a different point entirely. I don't think that Deborah is using her faith to mock or shame Barak, but to encourage him in two ways, with a promise and a sign. Are these not the exact ways the Lord encouraged Moses? With a promise of his presence. He gave him signs, his tangible evidence that my promise is good. Same thing, the Lord through Deborah gives Barak a promise. She promises her presence. And she gives him a sign, tangible evidence that everything that's about to happen will come from the hand of God. What's the sign? That the commander, Sisera, will die, but not by Barak's hand, but by the hand of a woman. That's tangible evidence that God has done this. That feels random. How, how will that be the sign? You've got to, you've got to realize at, at this point in history, women didn't fight in Israel's army. There wouldn't be a woman within miles of this battle, except Deborah. It's not going to be her. Like Barak, when he hears this, he couldn't even calculate a way that this could come to pass. So if it does, it'll confirm this was God. And so he gets the glory, not you, Barak. God's promised you his presence, he's promised victory, and he's going to give you tangible evidence that his promises are true. So Barak, don't fear. Be filled with faith. March on trusting him, no matter how dark 900 chariots make the situation seem. March on, Barak. He's not quite there yet. He does march on, but is with Deb holding his hand. And the rest of verses 9 and 10, they go, they gather the 10,000 men from two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. And then we get this weird cut scene in verse 11. Did you notice that when Park was reading through the chapter? It like comes out of nowhere. You ever, you ever been watching a movie and all of a sudden you just get this random scene that seems not to relate to the main plot whatsoever? And it won't be until way later in the film. Oh, 
Let's see how that weaves in right there. That's what the Bible is doing to us right here. Verse 11, read it with me. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, great baby name, Hobab, in case you're looking, the father-in-law of Moses, and he had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. Okay. <laughs> Why? If you can remember back again to Judges chapter 1, we've heard of the Kenites before. Verse 16 told us the Kenites, descendants of Moses' father-in-law, they'd settled. They'd been given a special place to settle in part of the southern land of Israel. And now we're being told that one of them, apparently, didn't like his place to settle in the south and moved up north because that's where everything's happening in this story. He moved up north, set up a nice spot for his tent. Thanks, judges, I guess. Now back to the action with Deborah and Barak. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of armor, armor and iron, and who were with him from Harosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. So, get the scene. Uh, we've got Debbie, Barak, and 10,000 foot soldiers like on Mount Tabor, which is re really more of like a, a hill in Israel. It's a hill that's like at the head of this flat valley. And, and through this valley, this plain, the Kishon River flows. And river is actually a really generous word. It's much more like a stream. It even dry up in the dry season in certain spots. So you've got them up on this mount and into the plain rolls Sisera. 900 chariots shaking the ground like thunder. If you were Barak, what would you do? Tell you what I'd do. I'd sit right on my little hill where those chariots are completely useless. But Deborah tells old lightning here that it's time to strike. Look at verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day when Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? Charge down into the valley, Barak. Sack the enemy. Why? Because the Lord goes out before you. She says that as if it's something that Barak can see. Like, does not the Lord go out before you? Don't, don't you see him riding out on his chariot in front of you, Barak? Shades, the song, once again, of Judges 5 lets us know that this is precisely what Barak sees. Because what he sees is a storm coming in. And Psalm 103 and verse 4 says that God makes the clouds his chariot. And in Judges chapter 5 and verse 4, we hear them singing about that chariot of clouds riding in with rain. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord. Even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. God rolls in on a storm so great it shakes Mount Tabor more than Sisera's chariots ever could. It, it shakes Mount 
Tabor so that he, Barak and the people literally feel vibrations that don't give them fear, but vibrations that fill them with faith. Like it's compared to us as the way that God's presence once shook Mount Sinai back in Exodus. Again, we're getting allusions to Exodus. There's tons of Exodus allusions and echoes right here. Again, we're gonna see God do the same thing he did in Exodus, just like in Exodus where he used the Red Sea to conquer Pharaoh's chariots. Right here, he uses the Kishon River. As this storm comes in, we're gonna get a flash flood and he's gonna use it to conquer the chariots of Sisera. Again, hear the words of the song. Judges 5 and verse 21 sings, the torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on my soul with might. You got the scene of what's happening God rolls in on a storm. The Kishon River shows its banks, bogging down Sisera's chariots, rendering them useless, and all of a sudden it's 10,000 against 900. And Deborah looks at Barak and says, don't you see the Lord riding out before you? And she sings, march on. March on my soul. How? With might. With might, because it's God who fights for you. And in verse 14, Barak finally does just that. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed, another Exodus word. It's used when, they're, when he's defeating the armies of Pharaoh at the Red Sea. It means he threw them into confusion. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. What good's a chariot when it's stuck in the mud? And Barak pursued the chariot, Harosheth, Hagoim, all the way home. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Total victory. Complete, just like God had promised. His promise fulfilled. Not a man was left. And I'm left asking, is that enough for you, Barak? Is that enough for you to now trust the Lord amidst the dark? Is that enough for us, Shades? Is it enough to see in God's word him keep his promises? Is that enough for our soul to march on with might? Is it enough? Because we, we see that no matter how dark this world gets, even when we are staring down our own form of 900 chariots, we see it is God who has promised to fight our fights, and he does. Is that enough for you, for me, to march on with might? If I'm honest with you, When I see things like what we just read through, and I see God keep his promises in these ways, my soul often looks at this and says, yeah, but is that really God at work? Or was it just some random rain? My mind doubts and rationalizes and gets all scientific method on faith. I look at a story like this, I'm like, okay, 
Maybe God's keeping his promises. Maybe the storm's just a coincidence. All too often, that's how I treat God keeping his promises in my life, Shades. I look at situations where it looks like God's kept his promises. I'm like, ah, you know, was that really the Lord or was it just some random coincidence? I'm, I'm going to need some tangible evidence that this was God keeping his promises. God is glad that we asked because in verses 17 to 21, he gives us that tangible evidence and he does it by keeping not just his promise, but his sign. Look at it. Verse 17. But Sisera, now oh, we got one straggling survivor here running away on foot. Sisera the sissy. Sisera fled away on foot. This is how I read the Bible, y'all. I'm sorry. I just, if you want to peek into my head, nicknames come up. So Deborah's Debbie and Deb and this is just what happens. Sisera the sissy. He fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Ah, and now our tent from verse 11 starts to come into focus. The place where Sisera thinks he can run and hide and find peace. And it seems that way at first. You read through it, and Jael invites Sisera into the tent. She hides him under a rug, but then things start to get a little fishy. He asks her for a cup of water. and For some reason, the text emphasizes that she gives him some milk. You can come up with your own reason. The only one I can think of is that that would make him drowsy. Apparently, it works because he falls asleep. And while he snoozes, Jael takes action, and it unfolds for us, much like Ehud's action did a chapter ago. It unfolds in super slow motion. The Bible that's usually really stingy with details gives us more than we asked for. Verse 21. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer. You're watching this unfold, and you're like, what is she doing with that? What are you going to do with that hammer there, Jael? She took it in her hand, and then she went softly to him. Well, maybe, maybe she's going to pin down the rug like nobody can find him. <laughs> and she drove the peg into his temple until it, this isn't one swing of the hammer, until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. You think? <laughs> like, we're meant to feel this scene this way. We're meant to feel it unfolding so slow. It's like we can feel the hammer falling. It, you feel that even more in the song. In chapter 5, I got to read it to you. I'm sorry, even if it makes us go long. Chapter 5, verse 26 and 27. This is, this is Israel singing about this. I want you to imagine us, Sunday morning, singing this song, all right? She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet, we're not done. He sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. That's how that's supposed to feel. Like you're stinking feeling the hammer fall every single time until dude's head is crushed. Now, 
This is another one of those stories in Judges that makes us as modern, refined readers squirm a little bit. Not to mention the song that I just read makes us squirm even more. The way it celebrates J.L.'s actions, it actually calls her the most blessed of women. You know who else gets a title like that? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Israel celebrates J.L., but we're left wondering, I mean, were her actions even right? I mean, they seem morally ambiguous at best, downright murderous at worst. There's an Old Testament professor and pastor, Dale Ralph Davis, and I think he says it best. Many of us in the West cannot rejoice when God smashes oppressors because we've never been oppressed or crushed by tyranny on a significant scale. We can't really understand from our study chairs, from our padded pews, or from our recliners beside our cozy fireplaces. Nevertheless, Deborah clearly votes for jail. Naturally, you can disagree. If so, you can claim more refinement, but less faith. Shades, faith is the point. Like right here in this story, we're not told anything about JL's motives because her motives aren't the point. No, the point being driven home, aside from the tent peg, the point being driven home is right here is God's sovereign hand. You should have faith in him. Is this not the very sign that God said would confirm? This is my action. So you'll know it's me. So you'll know I kept my promises. So you'll know my presence has been with you. This sign is meant to strengthen our faith that no matter how dark things may seem, God reigns. He rules. He's in control. So march on, my soul, into the darkness in the face of 900 chariots. March on with might. March on, my soul, knowing that nothing is random. Nothing is random. Not, not the rainfall that made the Kishon flood and not the hammer that drove the tent peg home. All of it, even amidst the dark, falls under God's sovereign hand. He's reigning over everything. He's reigning over one Kenite moving from the south to the north to put one woman in place, to drive one tent peg into one temple. Barak sees that, literally. Just read verse 22. He shows up, walks into the tent, probably thinking he's finally going to get to drive his sword home into Sisera, completely forgetting what God had said. And what does he see? Verse 22, Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. And it's got a hidden right then and there. God did exactly what he said he would do. He sees the tangible sign that confirms this victory and this glory doesn't belong to him. It belongs to God. That's the very next thing we read in the text. Verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king, for the people of Israel. This chapter, it, it begins and it ends with God. In order to help us see that when all other lights go out, this light still shines bright. Our God is ruling and reigning. Shades, do you believe that? Like whatever Mount Tabor you're standing in or Kishon you're beside, a little trickle of water that doesn't look like it is mighty enough to conquer 900 chariots on any of the best days. Do you believe when all other lights go out, our God is ruling and reigning? 
God has given your heart the same thing he gave Barak's so that you might believe it and march on with might. God has given you and a sign. We call it the gospel. And it's a story and a song. It takes much the same shape as the story and song we've seen in Judges 4 and 5. How so? In the gospel, we get another Miriam, not named Deborah this time, but named Mary, a woman who hears and heeds the word of the Lord. She even sings, leads us in song in Luke chapter 1. And God raises up a judge, a savior through Mary, much like he raised up a judge, a savior through Deborah. But this time he raises up the ultimate savior Jesus. And Jesus, unlike Barak, doesn't need anyone to hold his hand as he goes to war, not on Mount Tabor, but on Mount Calvary, where he crushes the head of his enemy, like Genesis 3.15 said that he would. He crushes the head of his enemy, not by putting a nail through his enemy's temple, but by taking nails in his own hands, and his own feet. And then he takes and he shares that glorious victory with another lady, not Jael, the wife of Heber, but with his own bride, the church. You and I share in the glorious victory of Christ. So says Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's the promise of the gospel. Complete, total victory. No matter how dark it gets, that promise provides might for my soul to march on. And that promise has even been guaranteed to you by a tangible sign. For in the greatest of all twists and all turns, Jesus' own death was proven to be victory through the reversal of resurrection. Shades. Does your Barak-like heart need a sign that God's promised victory is true? Look at the tomb. It's empty. I've been there. He's not there. What he says is true. And it's true for you. That, that point of Judges 4 and 5, that this is true for you. That's why Judges 4 and 5 echo Exodus 14 and 15, to show that God is not just the God who moved at Mount Sinai long ago. He's the same God who still meets us at Mount Tabor. He's not just the God who waters of the Red Sea. No, that same God uses little rivers like the Kishon to get victory. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says it best. The God who came to Sinai comes again and again to the aid of his people in their present troubles. The God who delivered at the Red Sea can rescue at the Kishon. The God who came to Mount Sinai comes to Mount Tabor as well, marching forth again and again to rescue his flock. God comes repeatedly to his people in distress. Omnipotence delights in encores. Shays, those encores aren't just for supposed titans of the faith like Moses. Those encores are for people whose faith is frail like, like Barak. Shades, this same God, this same God, the point of Judges 4 and 5 echoing, 
exodus is that this same God is with you doing the same work. Not just at Mount Sinai and not even just at Mount Tabor. At Shades Mountain and Red Mountain and in Shades Valley. Not just at the Red Sea, little streams like Lishon, but by the stinking Cahaba. This same God, this same God is with you. No matter how dark your world is, no matter if it seems like all other lights have gone out, you, you shades, you shades valley, you don't face any Sisera or any chariot alone. The God of Sinai, Tabor, the Red Sea, and the Kishon is with you and for you. March on my soul with. Can, can you sing that this morning? March on my soul with might. Can, can you sing that? It's okay if you can't. It's okay if you can't because, because I've got the feeling that there are some Debras in this room. And Shades, we need some Debras. She, she sings about herself. In Judges 5. Listen to it, verses 6 and 7. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers kept by the byways. Villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased until I arose. I, Deborah, as a mother in Israel. In other words, in days so dark that everyone was afraid to travel, People stayed inside their homes. In other words, in days of fear, Deborah arose as a mother in Israel. What does a mother do with a child's fears? Calms them with truth. Deborah arose, speaking God's truth, calling the people out of fear to faith. Not for her own glory, but for the glory of God. I don't... I personally don't think that Deborah would care that Barak gets a shout out in Hebrews 11 and she doesn't. Because she's not about her own glory. She's about God's. And Barak getting a shout out in Hebrews 11 isn't about him and his glory. No, it's about glory is on display in the fact that Barak's fear was turned into faith. Shades, we need some Debras to come alongside those of us who are frail. We need some Debras and we need them right now singing the gospel over those in our body who are in the midst of darkness to believe. We need some Debras who will come alongside all of us and sing, March on my soul with might. Can you sing that this morning? Can you sing it over someone this morning? March on my soul. March on Shades Valley. In the midst of a world where it seems like all other lights have gone out, the light of God's sovereign glory in the gospel still shines all the brighter. He so march on Shades Valley.